Chapter the Forty Fourth of the Manchester Man by Mrs. G. Linnaeus Banks. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Man and Beast. The January twilight had deepened into dusk, and from dusk to dark, before Jabez was sufficiently master of himself to descend into the light of the rooms below. Whatever of surprise or satisfaction Richard Chadwick's letter had held for him, a wave of sorrow had passed over soul and countenance for the sad fate of the parents whom he had never known. As his footstep was heard overhead, Ellen flew to meet him at the foot of the staircase, and threw herself into his arms. "'My love, my own husband,' was all she said. But such an intensity of devotion and sympathy was in the act and tone, that he felt he had indeed a true heart beating with his, as he held her close, and his lips touched her forehead as a seal to a new bond. It was but a single step to the parlour door, which opened on a room all aglow with light and radiant faces. On Mr. Ashton's inspiriting, Simon's easy-chair had been wheeled in from the house-place, there being no stately Mrs. Ashton at hand to demur at the innovation, or to whisper a syllable of class distinctions. And surely that was not. Yes, it was, Ben Travis himself, standing by the rheumatic old tanner, with both hands outstretched, to greet a new cousin in his long-time friend. And there was Bess, proudly glancing from his face to a piece of yellow paper. "'It's as like as two peas,' she cried for the twentieth time, handing to a tall foster-son a sketch which, though little more than a succession of brown smears, was a ludicrous resemblance to himself. "'Well, Jabez,' said Mr. Ashton, sitting by the fire with his handkerchief over his knee, after the first hubbub of congratulation had subsided, "'it is as well our new partnership has not been gazetted. I suppose there will have to be a change of name. And, Ellen, there will be Mrs. Travis after all.' This was but a playful sally on his part, but Ben Travis visibly winced, and quick-eyed Jabez saw it. "'No, sir,' replied Jabez calmly, with his hand on his wife's shoulder. "'There will be no change. I bear the name of the kind friends who saved my infant life, fed, clothed, and kept me through evil report and good report, through pinching poverty, privation, and pain.' He glanced towards Bess. "'As Jabez Clegg, I was enrolled as a blue-coat boy.' As Jabez Clegg, I was apprenticed to you, sir. As Jabez Clegg, I married my wife. As Jabez Clegg, I've been honoured with a place in your firm. And Jabez Clegg shall go with me to the grave. I had no name when that good man, pointing to Simon, lent me his. Time has made it mine, and I mean to keep it as honourable as it came to me. He looked down. Mrs. Clegg, are you content? Perfectly, Jabez. A long-sustained pinch of snuff spoke Mr. Ashton's approbation, while Simon could only reiterate, "'Eh, yeah, lad, when o' took thee out of th' waiter, or little thout what a blessing thou'd be to us, or the credit thou'd bring on our name, or nobbut wish Parson Brooks were alive now to year thee. Our relationship will only bind our friendship closer, whatever name you bear,' put in Ben Travis warmly, in spite of himself pleased with the decision which would spare him the pain of addressing Ellen as Mrs. Travis. "'And meals come round, whatever name you call em by,' supplemented Bess, who, like Martha, troubled with much serving, had been running in and out during the colloquy, 
while a combination of savoury odours and a clatter of knives and plates came from the adjoining room. "'It's supper-time now, and nobody's had even the tea yet.' "'Just so, just so, Mrs. Hume. But never mind the tea,' said Mr. Ashton. "'Here comes your good husband in from the cellar with a bottle or two of generous wine to drink to new relationships.' "'I think I shall go abroad for a few months, Cousin Jabez,' said Travis to him, as Mr. Ashton mounted first into the gig to return home next day. "'I require to dissipate thought. If I were occupied as you are from morning until night, there might be less necessity. But, I say, Chapman the landlord here tells me you painted his sign. I think the faculty must run in the blood, for I do a bit in that line myself sometimes. How is it I have not seen a brush in your hands latterly?' "'Well, I got a hint, through painting that very sign, that trade and art were incompatible, and seeing the force of the remark, as counselled, the cobbler has stuck to his last. Look, you cousin, Travis seemed fond of the word, the fabled shield had two sides. Stick to your trade if you like, but don't let your trade absorb you. A businessman who allows himself no leisure, and has no resource out of his business, is apt to degenerate into a money-grubber.' I hope better things of you. A nod, a shake of the hand. The gig rolled off with its occupants, and Jabez stood looking after them, hesitating whether to go back to the mill or to the cottage. The casual word of warning had come not one whit too soon. That which was sending Travis abroad had kept Jabez close to business. He had not sought so much to dissipate thought as to circumvent it by substitution. If he had given his leisure to the cultivation of art, it had of late been art only as connected with manufacture and money-making. Even his honeymoon he was casting into the miller's grist. He was ever ready to take a hint. He turned his steps towards Carr with something like a sigh. Well, perhaps I might as well give my afternoons to Ellen whilst we are here. I did not come to work, and the poor thing does need some compensation for the lack of a lover's ardour. God forbid that she should ever suspect that I married her out of pity, or that I should become a money-grubber. I wonder if Travis thought I was likely to neglect her. It is a thousand pities she should set her mind on me instead of him. And why she should passes my comprehension. He has every advantage of face, figure, and fortune, to say nothing of his evident devotion. Ah, women are strange creatures, and men are not much better.' I fear I am very ungrateful not to reciprocate her attachment more fully. Why, here she is running down the avenue to meet me, as if I'd been gone a month. I really ought to love her better than I do. But love can neither be forced nor crushed. Hey ho! Back to Manchester they went, rather sooner than expected. And then, though Jabez threw himself into business with a will, he bore in mind the parting words of Ben Travis. The contemplated amalgamation was effected, not without extra drafts on Jabez and his leisure, but as partner of a large firm, even though a junior, it was obvious he could not work as designer for calico printers, or for any other than their own house. Consequently, not being a man of pleasure, his evenings hung rather heavily on his hands, especially as neither Ellen nor he cared for the card-parties which formed the visiting staple. His very marriage had driven away his closest friend, and broken in upon plans and schemes which otherwise would have found sufficient occupation for his spare hours. Other friends, however, dropped in for an occasional chat. 
notably George Pilkington, to whom the wine trade had opened a road to fortune, with his reminiscences and jocularity, broke in on the monotony of married life, that monotony which is as much to be dreaded by young couples as is a first quarrel. Ellen knew it not, but Augusta's image often and often rose up between husband and wife, and would not be driven back, whilst Ellen's very caresses were a source of pain to him, so much he felt himself a debtor to her love. There was a void in his breast which she could never wholly fill. He himself complained of a dearth of intellectual recreation, and when Henry Liversiege suggested a return to painting, he fell back upon his advice. The fact is he needed to be alone, to have a place where he could shut himself up with himself, whether to indulge in daydreams, or to discipline his soul, or to think out the ideas of art, trade, or social economy which floated through his brain, and were dispersed by actual business or fireside chat, such a sanctum as had been his so many years in Mosley Street. But self-conscious he had shrunk from making the proposal, afraid to wound his devoted wife by showing a desire to isolate himself. The young artist's open remark was enough for Ellen. At once, a small room, or rather closet, partitioned off from a large one at the top of the house, was set apart for his use. He shelved one wall for books, set up an office desk, carried thither easel, papers and painting materials, enclosed the flyleaf of his father's prayer book within glass and a black frame, suspending it on the wall before him as a sacred relic. And there, after warehouse hours, he was wont to shut himself in, and almost forget that he was a married man. But this room acted as a safety valve. Luckily, in Ellen's eyes, Jabez could do no wrong. He was gentleness itself in all his comportment towards her, and the love which had sprung to life unsought, and lived so long without encouragement, asked but slight return to sustain it. It was treason for Mrs. Chadwick to hint that Jabez was unsocial, or gave them too little of his company. She was ever ready to resent it with the reply that, If he is not dull shut up there by himself, I am sure we three have no right to complain of dullness down here together. Yet if we analysed her heart very closely, there were longings and yearnings for his society, known only to herself. It was judged advisable for the further introduction and extension of Ashton, Chadwick and Clegg's business, that one of the partners should travel occasionally as their commercial representative, and naturally this duty devolved upon the active junior, whose capacity for the undertaking revealed itself not only in heavy remittances and a full order book, but in a paucity of bad debts. Of course he travelled with a horse and gig for the carriage of samples, and now and then he would take Ellen with him on a short journey an indulgence which appeared to fill the cup of her delight, and altogether the marital yoke in a few months adjusted itself to their shoulders very naturally. It was during their absence on one of the earliest of these journeys that an event occurred which set the indignant blood of Jabez on the boil, and showed there was a fire smouldering, not extinguished. The Aspinall home at Fallowfield was an ancient, many-gabled grange with mullioned windows, recessed window-seats, expansive two-leaved entrance arched above, noble hall with trophies from the hunting-field, grand staircase with massive carved oak balusters, flights of broad low steps and wide square landings, long corridors, three or four rooms of magnificent proportions, 
and clusters of little ones grouped around unsuspected passages and stairs. Open fireplaces recently enclosed, and double doors to the chief chambers. Antiquity has set its seal upon the place, and filled the panelled rooms with quaint or obsolete furniture and adornments, as each successive generation had left its quota. High-backed chairs, sofas of grotesque device with dim worsted work cushions and covers, heavy draperies of silk or velvet, and tables with legs of all possible patterns. It had come to the former Mrs. Aspinall from her ancestors, and from her to her son on his marriage. Consequently, this was the home proper of Lawrence and his wife, although they had a suite of rooms set apart from them at Ardwick, and Mr. Aspinall would fain have had his fascinating daughter-in-law abide there always, instead of making his house a mere convenience for visiting in town. Stabling and other outhouses were attached. The gardens were well laid out. There was a good quantity of grassland, all enclosed within a high wall, and it lay away from the main road. Mr. Aspinall's carriage was a close one, for service as well as show. Mr. Lawrence, on his accession to his mother's property and his wife's dowry, added to other extravagances, not a light carriage, but a new Tilbury, and astonished the crowd by driving tandem. Whitsuntide is the great annual festival of Manchester. It is the race week, the time when the Sunday school children dress in their best to walk in procession and have excursional treats into the country. In 1823, Whit Sunday fell on the 18th of May, when the hawthorn scented the air and cherry blossoms snowed on the carriage, which Mr. Aspinall sent for his daughter-in-law, that she might witness from his drawing-room windows the interesting spectacle on the green, and preside over the hospitalities of his open house during the week. At that time, as now, Monday was the day set apart for the children of all the established church schools to assemble at the collegiate church, sing anthems, and thence defile in long procession, six abreast, attended by their respective clergy and teachers, until they reached the green, where the girls in their white caps and frocks were ranged within the enclosure round the pond, the boys forming a dark cordon around them, and the crowd a motley one beyond and then from the multitudinous young throats poured forth anthems of praise in a volume of swelling harmony which hushed to silence the listening birds above them. Augusta, not in robust health, lay on a couch by the window and looked on her father-in-law watching her and anticipating her wants with the homage of old-world gallantry, for young Mrs. Aspinall was becoming an important person in his eyes. Nor was Lawrence much less attentive, he had been on his best behaviour for some time, and would scarcely let the wind of heaven blow too roughly upon her. At that period, Manchester races were held on Kersall Moor, an extensive tract of land generously set apart for the purpose by the owner Miss Byram. The glass of fashion and the mould of form was the handsome man who patted Augusta's shoulders, and stooped down to kiss her on Wednesday, the first race day but it was with something more than a shade of anxiety she saw him draw on his buckskin gloves, take the long reins, and mount his high tilbury, with Bob beside him, and dash round the lower end of the green at a canter. Evening came to verify her fears. Back from Kersall Moor came the tandem, and the tandem's master, but the biped was ebrious. He was in that stage of self-satisfied elation, which a contradictory word would change to fierceness and the whim of the hour was to drive his wife to Fallowfield, 
and show her how dexterous a whip he was, and that not Ducrow could manage a tandem better than he. It was in vain she or his father pleaded her delicate health, the height of the vehicle, the shaking she would sustain. He laughed at her fears, then fiercely insisted, and not daring to disobey, she was hoisted to her perilous seat. In much alarm, Mr. Aspinall mounted Bob on a saddle-horse to follow. The roads were dotted with vehicles and people, the latter shouting and singing, or muttering tipsy oaths as the fortune of the day inclined them. Lawrence proved his dexterity in guiding his far-off leader through all intricacies, but so close did wheel often come to wheel that Augusta's heart seemed to leap in her throat, and her teeth chattered, although it was May. After they turned off from the Stockport Road at Longsight, they spun along at a rattling pace, as he said, but she had to hold by the rail to keep her seat, notwithstanding which, at the sharp angle by Birch Fold, the vehicle gave a lurch which almost pitched her off. At their own gate there was an abrupt stoppage for opening, their return being unexpected. Then the foremost horse refused to obey the rein and canter up the drive. Lawrence plied his whip, which did not mend the matter, and but that Bob and the gardener were there to soothe the animals and lead them to the house, worse might have followed. As it was, Mrs. Lawrence Aspinall was half dead with fear and the shaking. She was lifted down and carried, almost insensible, into the house. Cicely and one of the maids got her to bed, whilst Aspinall himself, calling groom and gardener from the stables into the drawing-room, sat down to have a drinking bout with them. Presently Cicely put a white face in at the door and beckoned forth Bob, whom no drink seemed to affect, and sent him off as fast as four legs could carry him to bring back a doctor and acquaint Mr. Aspinall and the Ashtons that his young mistress was very ill. In less time than might have been expected, Mr. Aspinall's carriage brought to the Grange that gentleman, Mr. Ashton and Mr. Windsor, a young Quaker practitioner from Piccadilly. A competent nurse from the infirmary was on the box. There was no doubt she was in a critical state, but the immediate danger was warded off, and though Augusta was not able to leave her room in the interim, the scent of June's roses came in at the open windows before her baby was born, when penitent Lawrence went into raptures over wife and son. For two or three days he hovered about the house, nervously anxious lest any sound should disturb the young mother. He saw that every domestic was shod with list, stopped the great hall clock, and had the rolled-up carpets laid down on the polished oaken stairs. Four days sufficed. On the fifth he rode off to town on Black Ralph, on a pretense of business, but very little did Cannon Street see of Mr. Lawrence that day. With every acquaintance he met was a glass to be drunk, to wet the child's head. At the Scramble Club, where he dined, he paid for two or three bottles of wine, also to wet the child's head, according to the practice of the club. Riding home, he stopped at the George and Dragon, Ardwick Green, and went through the same process. There someone remarked that he was too drunk to stand, much less ride home, when he swore with an oath that he would show them how he could ride. He and Black Ralph were equal to anything. And then, amid roars of derisive laughter, he flung out another oath, and laid a wager which was regarded merely as the boasting of drunken braggadocio. He had kissed his wife's pale lips on leaving in the morning, and she faintly implored him to be home early. 
she did not dare add, and sober. Towards nightfall she began to listen for his return. Hour after hour went by, and at one in the morning she heard the great gates and the door thrown open for their impatient master by the watching servants, and the strong steed came tearing up the gravel, aye, and on up the broad flat steps, clattering through the great oaken hall, and, urged with whip and spur and a madman's voice, mount the freshly carpeted stairs, cross the landing at a stride, and driving back the affrighted nurse, enter that sick-chamber, where, with her baby at her side, lay the fair young wife, gasping and shrinking with terror, and there stand with quivering flanks and panting nostrils, as a reckless rider on his back cried in exultation, By God, I've done it! He had done it. No matter what noise accompanied the removal of horse and rider, the wife, whom in his sober hours he professed to love so passionately, lay insensible to sight or sound, and wakened only to a morrow of delirium. End of chapter the 44th